You may be seated. Amen. Good morning. It's so wonderful to be here together this morning. We're so very glad to have you with us, all of our members. We appreciate your presence with us, and we're very glad to have those of you visiting with us. We consider you our special and honored guest, and we want you to feel welcome and uh, always welcome to be a part of our worship services and activities. So we are always invited to come back at any opportunity. We're also very thankful to have those who join us online. We're very appreciative of you, and we're always thinking about you. Be sure to let us know if there's any way we can serve you. We're going to continue our series in Romans, and we're going to be in chapter 5 today, and we'll cover chapter 5 next week if you're wanting to read ahead. We're going to cover chapters 6 and 7, but we'll look at chapter 5 today. But as we get started, let's take a peek back at the end of chapter 4 where we left off last week in verses 23 through 25 to help us see the connection to chapter 5. And Paul writes, but the words, it was counted to him, talking about Abraham, were not written for our sake alone, but for for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Because righteousness wasn't just for Abraham, Paul is letting them know. It's for them in that present day when they received that letter and listened to it be read to them originally. And it's for us today as well. That righteousness that comes by faith and not by works or not by following the old law as he would stress to them over and over again. And, and how is that possible? It's through faith in the Jesus who was delivered up on the cross for our sins sins and then raised up from the dead by the power of God for our justification. And that's then how we can stand before God as if we had no sin. And that leads us right into chapter 5, verse number 1, where Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all that Jesus did for us, we have peace with God. You ever thought about your need for peace with God? You ever thought about that? That, that you needed some way to make peace with God. And that through Jesus, his blood and your obedience to the gospel, that you can have and do have that peace between you and God. Now, what does Paul mean when he wrote that? It's not a, a one-time peace, but a continuing, ongoing peace between you and God in your relationship with Him. Now, because when you were outside of Christ, you were in sin. You were lost in your sin when you're not in Christ. And so because God is a perfectly just and perfectly holy God, sin will be and must be dealt with or he cannot be a perfectly holy and just God. And so sin will be dealt with. It will be punished. And the Bible says, as we've been looking at, his wrath is coming against sin. 
But Jesus' blood saves us from that sin for those of us who are in Christ. And so that's what we mean, what, what is meant by Jesus being our propitiation. Because he propitiates the wrath of God on us. And so that our sins, we're not punished for our sins because he took them on himself on the cross. And so uh, that's how we can stand justified before him as if we had no sin because he paid the cost for our sins. He took them on himself. And therefore, there's no sin in between us and God. There, there's not wrath anymore. There's peace between us because of Christ, that great mediator, as the Hebrew author would talk about, between us and God, and, and that, 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 that blood that washes away, that cleanses us from our sins. Now, another point Paul emphasizes with the Roman Christians is that this peace comes through faith in Christ and not through obedience of the law. Because you could never fully obey the law, as he explains to them in this letter and in others. And therefore, there would, you would never achieve peace between you and God because you would always fall short of obeying the law. All have sinned. All, the, the, the law points out transgression. And so, so it, the, the, the person following the law would never achieve that peace. It can only be achieved in Christ, in obeying the gospel, being united with Christ in baptism. And so in verse 2, Paul writes, through, through him, we have also, not only do we have this peace, but we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So not only do we have peace with God through Christ because of his blood, but we also uh, uh, have access to the grace of God in which we now stand when we are in Christ. Look at this. Paul tells us that we have peace with God through Jesus and then we have access to the grace of God. To stand in the grace of God uh, is the defining characteristic of the Christian's life. They stand in the grace of God. Saved by his grace. That, that's the defining reality of the life of a Christian. And it's because they stand in his grace that they can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That future hope, that heavenly hope of the glory of God to be fully and finally revealed when Jesus returns. And that's the reward of the Christian, that to stand in the grace of God made available, uh, accessed through Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection. And it's because of this amazing blessing that we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, some translations, instead of rejoice, say boast. And yours may say boast, or, or some might say exult, and that's an older word. We're not familiar with that word as much anymore. But the word boast, when we hear boasting, we think, well, that's not good manners, right? Because we, we know you shouldn't boast about your accomplishments and, and your certificates and degrees and, and awards. And, and you shouldn't just go around boasting and boasting about how good you are. 
But, but that's the point Paul's making, is that you're not boasting in yourself. You're boasting in, you're proud of, you're declaring the greatness of God who saved you through Jesus. And, and you now have peace with him, and you now stand in his grace. And you can't help but tell somebody about it. You can't help but say, do you know what? Jesus saved me. I was lost. Let me tell you about how I lived. Let me tell you about how I was far from God. And I know Christ now. And I want you to know him too. I want you to know what the New Testament teaches about who he is and how to be in Christ. So, so we, it's often translated rejoice now because we like the sound of that better nowadays. That's really the reason. And that's an accurate word. But Paul is, the Greek word is communicating this idea of boasting in Christ, in your salvation, because you're so thrilled and thankful that you have it. You rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the Hebrew author in 619 of the book of Hebrews, he would say that our, our hope serves as an anchor of the soul that is sure and steadfast. That's our hope in God. It's the anchor for our soul. No matter what the waves do, that anchor is dropped down there at the bottom, and that, that, that's secure and steadfast for our faith. Now look at verses 3 through 5. Paul continues his thought on boasting in God, but then he kind of takes a turn here. He goes in a different direction and talks about difficult circumstances. He's talking about the harsh realities of life that, that, uh, that they were living in in those times when they received this letter, the suffering and the persecution, and that people still today deal with in, in different levels and in different ways at different times. But he's talking about a, a, a boasting and rejoicing through difficult difficulties through suffering and look at verses three through five not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us so Paul uh, the author saying not only do we rejoice? Uh, yeah, Paul is saying not only do we rejoice in uh, uh, our standing in the grace of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, if we were taking a vote, we would say, "Well, I don't like the sound of that. I don't want to suffer. I, I don't want to go through hardship and difficulty. I, I don't. I don't. I don't want to read those verses." And Paul is writing to people who were dealing with that and. It, the Emperor Claudius, remember in AD 49, we talked about he had expelled the Jewish Christians, the Jews, from Rome. And it was after he died sometime they were able to migrate back in and, 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 and fill back in the church, which at that time had just been Gentile Christians for a while. And now they were coming back together with di cultural differences, learning to, to love one another with all of their differences in different ways. And, and, he's, and, and, and they're dealing with this. They lived through this. They know what this is about to suffer for their faith. 
They knew hardship and suffering. And so, of course, our thoughts are on uh, the people of Ukraine and all that they're going through, the tremendous suffering and persecution and challenges and hardships. And, and, and it's like Paul's writing to them, too, who are Christians. And he's saying, he's saying, rejoice even in your sufferings. And when we think about the folks in Ukraine, we think, well, that just can't be. That just can't make sense. That doesn't make sense. Why would Paul say that? Why would the Bible say that? Why would God tell us that? Because suffering, he says, produces endurance. And, and, and that produces character. And what does character produce? Hope. You ever heard somebody say, if we were persecuted, we would be more faithful? You ever heard somebody, heard somebody talk about that? If there were persecution, it would really sift through who's, who's faithful and who's not. Well, that may very well be true because then you're really faced with the reality of uncomfortableness to the extreme, of, of, of actual sometimes life and death suffering and persecution. And so he's saying that when you endure suffering, it makes you grow spiritually. Now, now, we're sitting here in this pew thinking, well, we don't have to endure suffering like that. But you have to endure suffering when you're tempted, don't you? You have to endure when you don't want to do the things you know you ought to do. You have to endure some level, mild, relatively speaking, to many others. I understand that. But look at what you have to endure to, to face to be faithful. And maybe, maybe for us, that's more relegated to our private lives, to, to our small friend group, to who we think we can be and what we think we can do when people aren't looking, or certain people, right? And, 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 and so at least at that level, you have to face some, some challenges, some difficulties. And, and, and the, the question for you is, are you going to, is your faith going to meet the test of endurance? Is your faith going to grow stronger? Are you going to persevere under, under suffering? And is that going to help you grow in your character? And is that going to help you then grow in your hope? Well, how does that grow in your hope? Because when you've gone through it, then you have a greater appreciation for God's promises. Because God said, I'll never leave you, and he never does. God said, I'll never give you more than you can handle as far as temptation, and he never does. He always gives you an exit sign to get out of that temptation. And God says uh, uh, he, he'll work things out for our good. And he always does, even when we don't believe it and when we don't see it and we don't feel it. He always does. Why? Because he's God. And when you go through a thing like Paul did, then you can say, I can do all things through him who died for me. Right? Through him who strengthens me, I mean. So then you can claim Philippians 4.13. That's not saying you can get that scholarship and get that job and score that goal and all that. That's not what that's talking about. Paul just walked through his sufferings and he says, because I went through it and God was with me, I know, been there, done that, if I'm holding on to his hand, I can make it through. And that's what the, the, uh, Paul's saying here to the Romans is that your faith will be strengthened when you make it through suffering, even if that's suffering when it comes to temptations and, 
and what we might consider relatively mild persecution. And that grows your character and your hope in God only grows as a result. And Paul's trying to get us to have a bigger hope in God. You want to have greater hope in God? Endure through those sufferings without weakening in your faith. Let it build your character, and then your hope will be strengthened. Look at verses 6 through 11. Paul shifts here a little bit, and he says for, he's showing us about what Jesus did for us. Verses 6 through 11, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Remember, we just talked about that. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And Paul could pack in more than anybody else into a sentence or two, couldn't he? And we could spend a whole sermon just on those verses right there. We could do a whole class on that. But if you go back and look at that, do you see John 3.16 in there? What Paul just said was the good news of the gospel. He just told us about John 3.16. That's what he just said. He just talked to us about the good news of, of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. God loves us so much that he made a way for us to be back with him. That's how much he loves us. He paid the ultimate price for us. Now, what Paul's saying is when you were weak, you were ungodly, you were sinners, you were enemies. That's when God loved you. See, see, we think, oh, I, look, I gotta, I gotta fix myself up. I, I can't, I can't go back to church. I can't, I can't, you know, worship again. I can't get active in my faith until I get myself fixed, right? Till, till I get myself all cleaned up and acting right, right? But, but that's the point Paul's saying, is that you can't. There's nothing you can do. The, 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 the word still weak, when he says we were still weak, that means helpless, without strength. And in this context, it's referring to, it's an illustration of a person who's riddled with disease deformed, feeble from the disease, and in a spiritual way, the disease of sin in their life. And their life is wasting away. That's what he's saying when he says, while we were still weak, that, that's the condition in which he loved you. Not when you think you had it all together. At your worst, most broken, most feeble, most, most terrible point, that's when he loved you. And, and the old adage that says God helps those who help themselves, that isn't true because you can't help yourself. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us. Get it through your thick skull, he says. You can't help yourself. While you were weak, while you were ungodly, that means rebellious against God, couldn't stand God, living however you wanted to live to the extreme point at that point is when God loved you. Sinners. And, and then it says in enemies. Not only were you uh, weak, not only were you ungodly, not only were you a sinner, 
You were literally an enemy of God. How were you an enemy of God? Because of your sin. That, that, that James said that it's enmity between you and your God. And, and so because of that, that rebelliousness, you were standing as an enemy in rebellion against God because of your sin. You say, well, I was a good person growing up. Before you were, it doesn't matter. Before you were a Christian, you were an enemy of God because of sin. And at that point, God loved you and sent his son for you. And that, 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 in Acts chapter 2, that's what pricked their hearts because they said, wow, that went... At that point in my life, he loved me and died for me. Not when I had it all together, so-called. So Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul repeats it in a different way, the same point, verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then it got worse when he said we were enemies. Now, an enemy deserves the full wrath of God, a perfect, holy, and just God. That's what the enemy of God deserves. We, outside of Christ, we deserve eternal hell. That's a hard statement, isn't it? But that's what we deserve for our sin against a perfect and holy God. And he said, I can't let that happen. I want all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So he made a way and sent his perfect son. Now look at verses 12 through 21. Paul says more about sin and its destruction. And here we see Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's gonna, he's kinda, it's kind of like an origin story of sin almost here, like we see in movies where they'll do five superhero movies and they'll go back and do origin stories. We're kind of learning an origin story of sin. What happened here? And Paul writes, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, talking about Christ. Adam was like a foreshadowing of Christ. See, Paul's in agreement with Judaism. He's in, he agrees with the Jewish religion that sin entered the world through Adam when Adam sinned in the garden. And it wasn't just an individual act alone. It, it, it was an act at that moment and much more because sin is, is uh, not just a state that was there present at that time uh, that encompasses, it encompasses all of humanity. It, it, it just, its tentacles grew out and infected everything and everyone. That's what sin has done to this world. It has broken and destroyed it. And so this is also where the idea of original sin comes from, that we're born sinners. You've heard that? And so that's a big, big uh, debated topic, the idea of original sin. Are we born sinners? So if original sin, that's the way it's phrased, if that is true and we are born sinners, then that baby is a sinner deserving to go to hell. And all they did was be born. When did that baby sin? Grandparents, when did your baby sin? That baby didn't do anything wrong. 
and, and, you know, we talk about age of accountability. There's nothing about the Bible, but it's just what, it's when they get to the point where they understand, right? They, they understand right and wrong and, and what Jesus did for me. And that's what, that's what that's talking about. But that little child doesn't understand. They become, they, they learn to understand through learning from their parents and other, you know, society and things like that. So out of this doctrine has come infant baptism and many others. But is that what the Bible's teaching? No, original sin is a false doctrine. See, when Adam sinned in the garden, that ushered in sin into the world. And sin existed even prior to Adam's sin because we see that angels sinned as well. Adam's sin introduced sin and death into the world, and sin spread because all people will eventually what? Sin. So at some point, you committed your first sin. All people will eventually sin. But that baby wasn't born a sinner. Now, you were born into a world of sin, but we're not born sinners, but everyone born will, be, will eventually sin. But look at this other thought. We don't inherit, inherit Adam's guilt. In other words, we're not born sinners, but the con we inherit the consequences of his sin. And that is the two things that Paul's pointing out here. Sin and death. That sin ushered into the world. Sin, more sin, and then also death. Physical death as well as spiritual death. Separation from God eternally. So that's what sin did. Uh, some, and so th we, th that's certainly a topic we, we, we'll spend more time on another time. Uh, just the subject of original sin and breaking down that and looking, looking into that more. But when you sin, you know what you're doing. And when you look at conversion stories in the book of Acts and other places in the Bible, it's, it's people who repented. How can you hear the gospel and, and confess and repent of your sins if you don't even understand a language, if, if you don't understand what that means? So it can't be true of an infant and all of that. So it's Adam's guilt, not that his guilt that we're inheriting, but the consequences of sin, and eventually we will fall victim to sin as well. But look at verses 18 through 21 as we wrap up. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see how Adam and Christ, Adam is a type of, he's a, a foreshadowing of Christ, okay? Uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteousness because Jesus obeyed. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but with sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Paul's contrasting Adam and Eve and Adam and Jesus and foreshadowing uh, Jesus. And his sin, Adam's sin, unleashed the terrors of sin on our world. But what Jesus provided was the answer to that terror because that's what Paul's just talked about is Jesus is the answer and that's why we can boast when we stand in his grace of salvation in him because we've been saved from the consequence of sin. So last thought I want to give you is Adam got us into this mess but the good news is that Jesus gets us out, right? Right? 
The answer is in Christ. You want out of this mess and you want to know, well, what, what's this all about? And what, how are we going to make it through this life? We put our hope in God and Jesus is our ticket out of here. And we can have eternal life in Christ. Adam messed it up. But Jesus fixed it for us. Now, we could. there's a whole lot more to talk about sometime on that and how Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world because God always knew and it was always his plan to save people. That's how much he loves us. And I don't know where you stand in your relationship with God today, but sin and death are realities, aren't they? Unfortunately, we get sick and tired of being sick and tired of seeing the destruction of sin and death around us in our families and in our own lives. And thank God we have Jesus who can fix it in our life, who we can turn to. And if you need to turn to Jesus this morning, this is the time to do it. If we can help you in any way, maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you need prayers, encouragement, or you have questions and you want to study. We want you to know we're always here for you. If we can serve you this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.